Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Mike Plotnikoff. And if you're not familiar with Mike, Mike is an engineer, producer who has worked with so many different people in the industry. He's worked with producers and engineers like Bob Rock, Mutt Lang, Bob Clearmountain, Tom Lord Algae, Chris Lord Algae, Bruce Fairburn, and a whole bunch of others. And he's worked with artists such as Aerosmith, In Excess, The Cranberries, Brian Adams, Theory of a Dead Man, Three Days Grace, Kelly Clarkson, Hoobastank, Buck Cherry, a whole bunch more. The guy has worked on so many records, and you've definitely heard his stuff. Now, in this interview, we get into a really interesting conversation about the pursuit of perfection when it comes to your projects. Because we always want to continuously get better and better. And it's important to have a process in place so that you know when you're done with a project, because let's face it, you're never done. You're always going to be pushing yourself to learn and get better and better. And so we get into that conversation here today. We also dive really deep into his process for getting great guitar sounds and great bass sounds. And he gives us a very clear idea of how he mics his instruments, how he layers them. And when it comes to bass, he's got a really interesting approach. I kind of think of it like a five-layer dip of bass. And when you hear him explain how he does this, you'll realize just how much control this can give you in a mix. So if you struggle to get your bass feeling big and even, I think you're going to really appreciate his approach here because it definitely gives a lot of control to the engineer to get the right sound in the mix. So yeah, with that said, we cover a lot of great ground in this interview. I think you're going to learn a ton. So let's just jump right into it. Mike Plotnikov, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into all the awesome stuff you're working on these days? Uh, yeah, so uh, I started out as an engineer in Vancouver uh, at Little Mountain Sound, and that's kind of where I grew up. And uh, engineered for Bruce Fairburn for, you know, uh, I guess I almost 10 years was his engineer. So engineered Aerosmith, get a grip and, uh, in excess, couple cranberries records with him, scorpions. And that's kind of where I came from. And then, uh, you know, Bruce, we we're doing a yes record. I think it was like 1999 and Bruce passed away during, in the middle of the record. Uh, and then I ended up moving to Los Angeles in uh, 2000 and started working with Howard Benson and still to this day, uh, that's who I've been working with. So engineering and producing uh, with Howard, you know, some co-producing, mostly Howard produces everything, or, you know, 90% view the stuff lately though. Uh, you know, I've been producing for him and for his new record label. And uh, yeah, that's where we're at. That's where I'm at right now. That's amazing. I mean, I, f I feel like the uh, you'd mentioned working with Bruce and, and how you had started working on these massive records at, at that point. But I imagine that even before then, like there was there was you start you didn't just start with Bruce, I'm assuming. Right. You probably had your own little path to get to that point. Well, yeah, I started out as an assistant engineer or as a runner. At, at Actually, there's another smaller studio to go right back to the beginning. It was called Profile Studios in Vancouver. And I started, I started as an assistant there, but I knew Little Mountains where I had to be because that's where all the big records were, were being made. So ended up getting a job there after like bugging them for almost six months. And finally they had me come in and answer phones for <laughs> at the front desk from four till noon. And that's what I did until, uh, I think it was like Christmas time and nobody wanted to work. Everybody had, uh, had holidays booked and Bob Rock was going to come in and do three songs for Cher for a greatest hits record. So I'm going, well, I'll be your assistant engineer. And he's going like, yeah, no, you like, you answer phones. Like I need somebody. <laughs> but, you know, prior to that, I learned everything. Cause I would go in and there was a, a tech at the studio named uh, Ron Vermeulen who you know, built a lot of great studios in, in Vancouver. He built Mutt Lang Studio, Brian Adams Studio, The Warehouse, The Armory Studios, all these great studios. And uh, 
he was also a great engineer and he, he just, you know, kind of took me under his wing when I first started there. And, uh, so I, I learned all the gear and I would bring in a ghetto blaster into the studio, learn what every mic sounded like, what every compressor sounded like. So actually then when nobody did work and Bob goes, okay, you can do the session. I was, you know, I was able to do it and, you know, I, I surprised him. So Bruce Fairbairn was going to do an ACDC live record and, uh, and Bob goes, use Mike, he's really good. And then I started out as the assistant on, on the ACDC uh, live record. It was, you know, we did a lot of fixing up in the studio and stuff. Uh, it was the live at Donington record and and then, yeah, I just started out as the assistant then ended up uh, becoming Bruce's engineer. Assisted for maybe a year or two with him and then ended up being his main engineer for, eight, you know, eight, almost 10 years, I guess. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that, you know, that, that story of Bob Brock being like, yeah, you just answer phones. But, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you're like, no, I want this so bad that I'm like, I'm learning things. I'm watching everybody work. I, I know exactly. how to use this gear, right? And I would come in, even though at the studio, they only wanted me to be there from four to midnight because that's when the, everybody left or, the, you know, the secretaries and all that left the studio. So in the, in the uh, tech department didn't want to answer the phones because the tech department would be there till midnight every night. They would be a double shift and they didn't want to answer phones, but I would come in at 10 in the morning. And then when everybody left the studio, I would stay till three or four in the morning in the studio. And I would, I would copy all like Bob Rock and Mike Fraser's and Randy Staub's EQ settings for everything. <laughs> That's basically what I would do. And then I would go find these bands and bring them in and try to emulate what they did because I had their EQ settings. So I'm going, well, this is what they used on the kick. And even though it didn't sound anything like their record. <laughs> well, I was about to say that, right? It's like, you know, that's kind of like the equivalent of using like plug-in presets these days where it's like, yeah. there's some settings there, but you might not necessarily know the mindset behind why they made those moves. Exactly. And I would go do it and I'd bring it in. I go, well, I have, this is exactly what he did on the drum. Like I, I would even put the, at the time they had the Bernoulli's on the SSL. So I would have the exact setting, everything. So I would do it to a T and I go, the drums sound like garbage. They sound nothing <laughs> like Dr. Feelgood. How is this possible? Like, this is crazy. And, and then, you know, then, you know, I realized over the year or, you know, well, not over the years, but shortly after that, you got to do your own thing. But, you know, seeing what they did, you know, what they did and, and hearing what it's supposed to sound like. I always had a good reference in my mind. I knew what was right and what was wrong. So sometimes it was like, it took me a little longer to get there, but I knew that this is not sounding good. So I got to figure out how to make it sound good because I always had a good reference in my, uh, in my mind. And cause all the great people that I got to work with, the great producers and engineers that came through little mountain when I was an assistant, I got to work with was, you know, I learned so much from them because I was right in there watching them and, you know, got to work with Bob Clearmountain, both Tom and Chris Lord Algae when I was, you know, in my early days, uh, Mutt Lang, just all these great producers, Chris Thomas, you know, that all came through Little Mountain doing stuff with either Brian Adams or Queensryche or, you know, just different projects. So I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time and, and, and kind of start at the top and, you know, learn from all these great, great engineers and producers. That's amazing. And then, and then took everything that I liked from them and then added my own little thing into it. Of course. I love that. And I, I love that you were talking about how you kind of had this reference in your mind of what sounded good and what didn't. And to me, that's a really important thing because I think a lot of people, especially when they're just getting started, they don't have that concept of like, the reference and what they ultimately want it to sound like. So, you know, they're kind of doing like what you said you were doing, where like you're copying all these settings and just, you know, hoping that that gets you the sound. And then if it doesn't, you're like, oh shit, what do I do now? Right. So yeah. like, but at least when you have that reference, you can reverse engineer it a little bit and realize, okay, maybe this is, I went too far with this EQ here. I got to back this off or, you know, to, to actually get the sound that you really wanted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, and even goes for me even today, because you hear a record, a finished record and you go, oh, wow, that sounds good. But you don't understand the steps of how they got to that finished product. 
So it's really hard because you think that the snare sounds a certain way or you think the guitar sound a certain way or the bass sounds a certain way, but you're not hearing it being, you know, the original, like, here's the original snare sound. This is what it's supposed to sound like when we're tracking it. And that's how you get to that finished product. But hearing a record, just the finished product and trying to go, well, I think that's, you know, the EQ that's on the snare. That's what they used maybe in the mix. It's really difficult to get there. Totally. And especially, you know, you brought up the idea of like listening to the snare, for example, as, you know, the finished product. A lot of times the the recorded sound doesn't always match up with the finished mix because there's samples and there's all sorts of layering and stuff like that, too. So you can right. kind of chase your tail a little bit trying to get some of those sounds. You, you kind of Absolutely. have to. You don't know what the cymbal mics are doing in there. Like what are the, how are the cymbal mics contributing to the snare sound? How are they, are they putting any of the Tom mics leakage in there? Is that contributing to this? Uh, you know, how tight is it gated? What's all contributing to this snare sound or this drum sound that's in there? Like it's really hard to tell because if you pull out maybe too much of the leakage of the Toms, you know, like for instance, for me recording, I don't gate my tom, toms tight. I, well, I have a method of how I, I, I do my toms, but I like the way the snare sounds in the tom mics as well. So I like a little bit of the leakage in there. And my overheads, the way I mic my overheads too, is very important for my snare sound too, for body and stuff. So it's all part of it and where my phase is. It's not just like, oh, I have one like great snare tone, because if you might have like this, you, you sit there and spend all this time EQing the snare, but you put it in the mix and it's just going, well, it doesn't really sound good in the mix, but it's the combination of everything in a, in a drum kit. And then again, you know, now today with samples and everything, but this, w- working with them and all these great engineers and producers, you see how they, oh, that's how they mic it. That's how they got the kit to sound like that. That's actually why the snare sounds like that in the mix. And yeah, I, I love that. I think that's a, a really important point that like you shouldn't just be focusing on like the close mics because it really is, especially with drums, it really is a combination of everything. And, you know, maybe maybe some of that snare EQ that you need actually you got to do on the tom track, you know, and I, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting thing that a lot of people don't even think about. Yeah, it's the or the symbols are like you know the symbols have a lot of that thud in there, you know, where the overheads, symbol mics, you know, the room mics. You have some close room mics or far room mics. What's adding to it? And then and then same with the low end, you know, hearing just how the bass is tracked and then how that's adding to the kick drum and the low end. You know, is there maybe there's not as much low end as you think there is in the kick drum or vice versa in the bass drum. But hearing that build up as starting to track and you hear these, you know, you worked on these great records and you, and and you've seen how it was built. You go, Oh, so that's why, like you're, I'm concentrating on the wrong thing. Actually, what I, I don't really need to be concentrating on this. I need to be concentrating on something else. Mm-hmm. Get it to where it sounds like that. Yeah, I definitely feel like drums are always a really big challenge with that kind of thing because, yeah, especially, you know, with you having worked with people like Bob Rock and Mutt Lang, like those guys were kind of notorious for like heavily layering samples and stuff like that in there. And like, so you get these like giant sustained drums and that's just impossible to get with a close mic. So you do have to understand what went into that, that whole process. Yeah, exactly. And the yeah, so it all works together. They all have to work together. Yeah, love that. Yeah, can be just one great kick sound or one great snare sound. Has to be the entire kit has to sound good, and that snare has to sound good in all the mics. You're using a live kit, of course. So for you to like reverse engineer that, like you said, it's it's a very hard thing to figure out when you're listening to a record that like you know maybe that snare sound is actually a tom EQ that that kind of thing. So as far as like you getting to a point where now you understand that. Was that just a matter of like shadowing what the other people were doing or like just asking questions or was it just trial and error? Like what did that look like for you? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, like when you're, when you, when you, I guess when you see it being put together or or when you're, say I'm in a room with them and making a record and you hear it and then you go do your own record and you go, well, why is it not sounding like what they did? I think that's where I really started in, in my very early days. And then started figuring out, oh, it's because, you know, starting to put two and two together. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I did ask questions. And 
I didn't really ask, but Mike Fraser was really good. I would ask him questions a lot. So he was, he was really good at telling me, you know, how to, how to, how to look at it, how to visualize it, how to, when I sit in front of the speakers, you know, what it should look like. So he, he, he taught me to visualize it a little bit, you know, it should look like glass and it's clear. And <laughs> he gave me all these little pointers early on when I would ask him. And, and so I learned, I, I still hold those, whatever he told me, you know? Yeah. Those lessons. Yeah. Those lessons that he, he, he told me, but he, yeah. So he was good at doing that. And, yeah, asking questions. And then, you know, you get, you get into your routine and like, I'm like in a routine now, like I listen to other records and I go like, man, how did they do that? I wish I could do that because I feel like, oh, I, I can only do one thing, you know, you get in your, your groove and it's kind of your sound now. It's what, you know, and you always want something different. You always want to try to better yourself or make it better. And how could I make it better? I don't even know what better is anymore, you know? True. And you're right, though. It's like you, you kind of find what it's a, it's almost like once you finally accomplish that that feat of getting a certain sound, you're like, yeah, I did it. And then you get like so comfortable just doing that over and over again. And then inevitably someone else has a new mix. that's like the mix of the week or whatever. And it's got some cool effect or something in there. And you're like, oh, shit, like now now I need to get there. And how do I get yes. there? <laughs> yeah, and it's happening all the time now. And it's like whoa you always got to be on it and somebody's always doing something cool and new and different and everybody has different ideas and but the thing is too also i find is not to chase stuff either like be yourself it's it's like you know even great artists acdc doesn't try to go oh, all of a sudden I, I have to be this new uh edm act or something is you you have to be your your own artist and 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 people like that and and you have to be different, mm-hmm. have your own fingerprint, your own stamp. But if you try to copy everybody, you know, like even if I tried to copy Bob Rock all the time and I got close to it, I'm still not him. Absolutely. So so people aren't going to want me, even though I could get close, they're going to want Bob Rock or they're going to want, you know, so be your own self and get your own thing that stands out. It's, you know, all the great artists all have their own sound and, you know, whether they're mixers, producers, or bands, or whoever, that's what it is. And I find too many people nowadays, they all want to copy somebody, but don't copy. The ones that are cool is something that sticks out, something that's different. That's why, like, when a band like White Stripes comes out, or, you know, it might be totally, you know, left field, but everybody, oh, that's cool, because it's something new. It's that only that person can do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like there there isn't just one great guitar tone or one great drum sound. There's infinite. There's infinite guitar. And and in 50 years from now, somebody's going to come up with a new guitar tone or something different. It doesn't have to be. I know it's easy to chase or because it puts you in a box and you go off. If this was good and it's sold and I sound close to this, it must be okay. (laughs) You know, and I think that's, you know, it's it's a trap that a lot of people fall into, you know, including myself which you have to kind of stay out, just do your own thing. Be, you know, be creative, be an artist, be a painter. It doesn't always have to be this paint by numbers process of making a record. So it's cool. Like sometimes maybe it is like only cool to not double your guitars and put one, you know, just one guitar in the left speaker, you know, like old school, like Van Halen or something. Like, I don't know, like somebody's going to come along and do that one day and everybody's going to be going, Oh my God, that's amazing. That record's amazing. It's so true. <laughs> and uh, it's easy to it's easy to fall into like the trends in music. And then, yeah, it just takes that one band to explode that has something different that all of a sudden now everyone's like, OK, that, that's the new direction we all need to go in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to be that. Kind, you have to be that that person that, that forges the way forward. Of course. So as an engineer, then when you're working with bands, you know, like you, like you just said, like having, having your own sounds really important. And that's uh, for, for bands, that's really important as well. So as the engineer, you obviously have your go-to ways of setting things up or getting a certain sound and, and that kind of thing. But keeping that artist's originality in mind, how do you approach your sessions when you're, when you're recording a band? Like, do you kind of just let them dial their own settings in to start? Or do you kind of like, know like, okay, this is the kind of sound we're going for. I'm going to just do it myself, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it varies artist to artist. So some artists, so uh, actually I'm starting another in, in, on May 15th, I'm doing an, uh, another record within flames, which I've done their last three records. And, uh, 
So working with them, they're very, I don't know if you know them, but they, as far as like a newer band, they know what they want. So their sound. So Bjorn will dial in his sound. He knows exactly what he wants. So for me, it's just like, I have to get what he's dialing in. And if I get that, then it's all good. But there's certain bands that come in, newer bands that want their sounds dialed in or they wanted something. So then I'll have to go, okay, well, let's try, let's start here. And I have a good starting point. So my starting point is really good, obviously, because of all the records and, you know, by hearing their demos, what the, who the band is, what they want to be, what they want to sound like, the, all their songs. So I go, okay, this is going to be the starting point. And I'll start from there. And I'm usually, you know, pretty close on, on where, where I, you know, hit that dart. And now it's just adjusting from there. But now if I was way off, that would be a problem, but I'm pretty good. And then uh, getting what like bands like in flames. I like that. I like when I don't have to think about it when they do it. Cause I, al- I already know I, I have good, great miking technique. I know how, how EQ works. I know consoles, I know preamps. I know everything to get the sound they want. So when they create their own sound and they put it in the room and Bjorn has his guitar sound or bass sound, I know that I'm going to be able to capture it. There's no, I've been, I've been, you know, recording music and engineering for 30 years now. So I know exactly what mic to use, where to put, where to put the speaker in the, in the, in the, in the room, all that. So that's, so for me, that's the best part when the band comes in and they know what they want. Yeah. It's just like, okay, great. I don't have to do anything. It's just like I'm on autopilot. I just, throw, you know, for me, it's like a monkey putting a mic up to to the guitar cabinet and, and make it work. For sure. Well, I mean, you definitely have that experience to know what works and what doesn't. And, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. sure if a band came in being like, yeah, this is our, our settings and, and they sounded like shit. Well, then maybe you could show them an alternative way. Maybe I don't yeah, know. I guess then, there's- yeah, then. But th- yes, th- then I would show them an alternative way. But there's not many bands that... I, they come in that don't have a good sound. I think that the newer bands that I do that maybe aren't as, maybe they don't know what sound they want. I think they know what sounds good. I've never really had a band that came in and they, they had this sound and I go like, Oh, that's just bad. (laughs) And because I have all my own amps and all my own guitars, like I have a huge collection of, I don't know if you've seen my studio or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's very impressive. Yeah, so I have everything and you know cuz I've collected all the gear over the years because maybe in the very beginning, you know, back in the early 90s when a band would come in with their own amps and guitars and they didn't have, you know, they wanted to sound like Eddie Van Halen but they had some lousy guitar and lousy amp that I went and got all this stuff, you know. So I, you know, got the same guitar heads that Eddie Van Halen used, you know, whatever Angus Young used. I have all the vintage stuff, all the modern stuff, all the great guitars, all the great cabinets, all of that. So I, I, most bands, I tell not even, they don't even bring their own gear because I have everything. I just rather, you know, maybe if they got a guitar or pedal that they really like, they'll bring it. But otherwise, in the most part, they use 90% of my gear. So then I, I just don't have to worry. I know what all my amps sound like, what all my guitars sound like cabinets. Makes sense. And if people are coming to you, you obviously have such a big catalog that people already are familiar with what you're capable of doing. So, you know, they, they have an expectation of like the kind of sound they're going for, or, or they're like, Hey, we, you know, there's this record that you worked on that, you know, we'd love that guitar tone. I'm sure, I'm sure you get that a lot or people are trying to pull up old, Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, and it, it's it's funny because it's it it, it kind of happens in these cycles of you put out a record and then it's what maybe ten years go by or seven years, like it's a seven to ten year window, and then all of a sudden these new bands coming up are going, well, that's the record I was like listened to through school, <laughs> and that's what I want to sound like, and it's really funny some of the some of the bands that I've done. That, that come around and go, oh, I want to be like that, you know, that, that, you know, was, that was my record. That was my jam through all of, you know, and then it makes you feel old because you <laughs> feel, really you're listening to that in high school. Oh man. But I, you know, it's kind of interesting as well because there is always that dilemma when it comes to artists putting out records where it's like, do you want that, modern sound that like can kind of compete on the radio against other current songs versus 
this nostalgic sound maybe of, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever. Um, and so do you find that happening with a lot of the artists that you work with where it's like trying to figure out how to straddle that line of that? Like, I grew up with that record. I love that sound, but maybe it's not quite the sound that people are expected to hear right. today. Well, I think that's more in the, yes. Uh, so it is a combination of using that with plugins now, like where I find I'm using more like guitar plugins and, and adding it. It's a mixture of like digital and the analog. Yeah, there is a fine line. And it's not necessarily that they want that exact sound from that record. It's just the record that they were inspired by. And now, I guess, because they're working with me, it's not like we're trying to match that sound. I've actually never, there's only maybe been one or two projects that I've actually gone back and they wanted to have it really close to the sound of a certain record. But usually, like, and I don't want to go back either. Like I, I honestly always want to try to come up with something new. I don't, I don't want to go back to something I did in 2007 or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always want to try, well, how could we better? Like I said, I, I still, in my mind, I haven't made the record that I hear in my head. So I still <laughs> haven't got that, that, that record. That's uh, funny. <laughs> Yeah, so like there's in my head I hear something and I'm just I haven't quite got there yet. And I feel like I'm just short of it. It it, it feels like, you know, like what's that saying? If you're trying to get to the wall and you only go halfway every time, you're never going to get there no matter what. So if you only go halfway there and then another half and another half and it, you'll just never get there. That makes sense. And yeah, you know, I think that that you know, that that pursuit of that perfection perfect record whatever i think that is the thing that keeps us driving keeps us keeps us learning new things and and you know we'll probably never achieve that but it's just like as long as it keeps us thirsty to learn more stuff and to grow that's that's really the whole point of that you know yeah and and when you do learn and when you do come close and you go because you'll have a record and i i always analyze like when people ask me they go well you know how do you how do you proceed or how do you think of you know making records and i always analyze it to sports in a way that you're sometimes you're going to win and sometimes you're going to lose. And even in, in baseball, if you're batting 300 in baseball in the major leagues, you're, you're a top major league player, probably making millions of dollars a year. And that's saying that you're actually missing the ball seven out of 10 times. You're only hitting, <laughs> you're only hitting three out of 10. And it's kind of like that with music too. People look at the resume, but it's been a long resume, but there's a lot of losers in, in that in that resume too. There's there's ups and downs. There's winners and losers, and people always go, "Oh, well, it's easy," or it's it's not. It's it's always a struggle. There's always a struggle to finish a record, no matter what the record is. Going through the process of it, it you start. It's all exciting. There's a middle part. There's a lull in it. There's all of a sudden the the questioning of, of is this even good or not? And then it comes out and then the audience dictates it and, and you don't know. And it's easy to look back and go, yeah, well, of course it was a hit record or of course, like it sounds amazing, but honestly, there's no record that I've really done that everybody goes, Oh, this is amazing. And sitting there, you know, you know, going, Ooh, this is we, 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 <laughs> we hit it out of the park. It's just never like that. There's, every record is a struggle to get to the end. And, and, and when you have a bunch of people involved in it, what, you know, the band and there's a, you know, a producer and the engineer, another mixer, uh, the record company, every there, people start second guessing it. And there's always, there's always people second guessing. And once they start putting that out and putting that uncertainty out, then all of a sudden you start questioning it. And those are the, those are the hard, hard parts of it. And you're going, geez, I don't know. And then it's like, and then you have, you have to get through that. And I think that's, that's the hardest part of making a record. Of course. And then, but I think that's, what's fun about it because then when you do make it and it shows, then you go, well, I can't wait to get do the next one because I'm going to use those same, it it worked that time and it (laughs) has to work again. So I mean, you know, do that same formula and then it absolutely totally doesn't work the next time. So it is the, there is no formula and people always ask, well, how do you do it? I, I go, I don't know. It just, it, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. 
But I think what I've learned and from, you know, different bands and different artists and different people that I worked with, what I've learned is it's getting through those dips and those uncertainties because everybody has it. And there's not one person I know, no matter how big they are, who you think they are and what you think of their records, they all have the same, they all go through the same things. And it's getting, it's getting through those moments and, and standing and and getting to a point where, you know what, I got to stand strong here and have that confidence. And, and then, cause that helps because people want somebody to, I guess, land the plane. If you're on a plane, you want a pilot who's going to be able to take off and then to be able to fly you to the next city and then to be able to land that plane. And other people just want to go there and party on the plane. Some people are scared on, you know, it's, you have all these different things, but you want that one captain there that's going to land it. And I think to me, that's really the most important thing about engineering and, and producing is if you could be that, you know, that, no matter what's going on around you, the storm and chaos around you, you just got to be, you just have to stand strong in, in your belief, whether you know you're right or not. Yeah. But just even having that confidence sometimes is, is, is all it takes. For sure. So that, that brings up another interesting question then, which is, you know, with this pursuit of perfection and with these self, self-doubts that you have along the way and, you know, with all the critiques of everyone involved in a project, Ultimately, how do you know when a project is done then? Because because it sounds like you're you're kind of hoping that it's you're just letting it go, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you ha- you have to let it go. You have to uh, there has to be an end game. And I've learned from I, I, I've been lucky to work with Bruce Fairburn for years and, and now Howard Benson. And both of them are amazing at closing. it. They'll go. They'll shut it down. They'll go. Listen. We're going in circles. This is not getting anywhere. It's not getting any better. And it is what it is. We're, it's just, we've, we've done the best we can on this. And anything else is, is a detriment to the record. And you have to know, because believe me, artists will go for, they'll never shut it down. First of all, they, it's their baby. They got to release it into the, if you don't release it, if you don't finish it, nobody hears it. So there's a lot of people that have that, you know what, I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it, but there's a point in time where you just have to go, you know what, I did the best I can on this. And it has to be, it has to be, it has to be released. And you know what, if this one isn't good, then I, it's good. I'm going to have to do it on another one. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing, but uh, like I said, Bruce and Howard are really good at going. That, that's it. There's just no, no more we we could do. You know, it's it's it. And you have to have a game plan. You have to have uh, a schedule. Like this is what we're going to do, and this is the time we're going to spend on it. And listen, we're going to come. We're going to come prepared. It's up to you, the artist, now to come prepared. And if you're not prepared, that's not our fault then you you have to you have to come and be like your coach for a team and you know one of your play, hockey players uh comes with uh you know no skates and then blaming you right <laughs> you know that you can't they they can't play for sure i mean it's it's that's always a an interesting area i feel like especially with like people who are inexperienced they're they're maybe even because they, because they feel like there's so much to learn, they just like they never finish their songs, and it's something I see in the home recording world all the time that people just sit on records forever. And the reality is that like there's always going to be a modern sound, and what was modern two days ago is different now. It's not modern today, exactly. And so you're always going to be chasing that, and at some point you just have to realize like, okay, this is like a snapshot in time of what my music sounded like. Let's put this out. Let's move on. Let's maybe see what worked and what didn't work. What did people like and not like? And and from there, it kind of inspires your next moves and you can go from there. That's exactly right. This is a snapshot in time, what you said. It's like you're recording a moment in time. So you rec- you came in and you had, say, 30 days to make a record. That's it. You captured that time in 30 days, put it out. It doesn't matter. And if you look at even old records that, they didn't have automation or computers. Like you take a Rolling Stones record where the shaker is louder than everything in, in the track because 
they were probably mixing. They had, you know, no automation, bunch of guys on faders and they had one day in the studio to mix three songs and that was it. And, but nobody complains about it. It becomes that song and that's what gives that song the, it's thing. So, and I know, I know some of the best records I've done were done really quick. The ones that you spend too much time and overthinking on them are the ones that don't do as well because it's like we've, we beat a dead horse and we went backwards and that's the worst. Mm -hmm. And people always say like, you know, you make records and I get so many comments like where, Oh, it's the vocals are too tuned or this is too this or too that. Well, because we spent so much time on it because everything had to be perfect. And then the people (laughs) hate it and the reviews are terrible on. And then I do a record that, you know, a little vocals are a little out of tune here, but the band's complaining or somebody's complaining, but those records do amazing. So, (laughs) you know, the ones we sit there and go, Oh, every kick and snare is perfect. And every, the editing is just absolutely perfect. Well, you know, in, in terms of sales and you got to go by sales or streams because that's what people are listening to. Obviously we're feeding, you know, it's like a restaurant. If you're making terrible food, nobody, no matter what you think of the food, if nobody's coming and buying that food, you're not going to stay in business. And music's like food where you're giving, you're giving the public something to digest. And are they going to, are they going to enjoy that? Are they going to enjoy that meal or not? No matter what you think of it. So I'm making a record that I go, this is amazing and all this stuff. But the public that I'm putting it out there goes, well, I, I'm not able to digest it. I don't like it. <laughs> what am I do? What am I doing then? I, yeah. I need to make something that, that people are going to enjoy listening to, that they're going to be able to digest. And if they can't digest, it doesn't matter what I do. If I spend three years on it and I, well, every little, th- this just the most perfect record ever. Well, is it perfect? I don't know. Not, not really. Cause nobody <laughs> likes it. Nobody's eating it. Yeah, that's so true. And it, and it definitely, you know, with that, uh, modern sound, it's like, there is this, this push to perfection these days, but then yeah, so many people are still in that like nostalgic phase where it's like their favorite records are the ones that they grew up with. So like those don't sound like the, they do now, you know? <laughs> so it's always a fun little balance there. Well, because when you, when perfection is like, I, I, it's it's hard to say what perfection is because I think perfection is people look at at perfection in, in different ways in music because we have editing and computers now, whatever, you know, system you're working in, Pro Tools or Logic or whatever, but when we can make everything so perfect, it becomes a computer record really. And there's guys that are, are amazing geniuses that could sit there in front of a computer and, you know, but it takes out a little bit of the human feel out of it. Mm-hmm. And when you lose that, yeah, it's perfect in a way that I've done, you know, I've every 64th note is, is as perfect as it could be, you know, but is that <laughs> perfect? Yeah. I got, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's sometimes it's the, it's the feeling and the moving around and the vocals that are maybe a little bit like just a little out here, or, you know, the guitars might be a little out of tune it's a fine line because sometimes the little bit of out of tune guitars are what gives it the effect or coursey part that make the guitar sound cool mm-hmm. there's a really fine line in there but you sit there and you take all that all that out and you make it you make the record stale it's then it's like mm, i don't know it's like yeah it's perfect it looks perfect on the screen and in pro tools and i know it's perfect because i sat there for six months you know yeah, doing every frequency and pulling, you know, if I look at that filter pro and every frequency is cut perfect. These tight little notches everywhere. But I don't know, because up till 2000 records were made like that. They were like everything was oh, put a pull tech on it with the curve, like, you know, the biggest <laughs> curve you have. And um, I mean, boost whatever, a little 3K, but it starts boosting from, you know. 900 up to or from 1k up to 5k or something you know the the band you know the 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 queue is so so big and and those are the best sounding records and now everybody's sitting there with the cues so tight just carving notching every little every frequency thinking that's going to be the perfect record and i don't don't know i'm still out on that i often think about that where it's like with pro tools or any DAW, you have the ability to add so many different plugins on a chain. And when you see empty slots, sometimes you're like, I got to fill that. 
you know, throw yeah. something in there. And, I know, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> yeah, and then I think back to like, okay, well, how did they do things back in the day with, with a console where they just had one EQ, that was their only choice, you know, three bands, they made it work. So sometimes simplicity is the way you have to go. <laughs> it is, it is simplicity. And now there's so many plugins and now you take every sound is so artificially manipulated. I think that's what we think of modern is just taking every sound and manipulating it so much that we don't even know what it is anymore. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, now there's like all these AI plugins that are coming out too, where like they're just analyzing your mixes and doing whatever they think it needs to do. And like, we don't know those algorithms. We don't know what it's trained to think sounds great. And, you know, then we, we lose control of our own vision for these tracks and it, it could be very dangerous. It is. Yeah. Yes, yeah. definitely. And so I don't have an answer for any of that. It's just kind of that's where we are right now in the evolution of music and production and engineering. And, you know, where it goes from here, I don't know, but that's kind of where we are and have to make it work. And and like I said, there are great people that are doing like amazing records that sound amazing out there. And you kind of just have to do what you do and, and see where you fit in. And For sure. Yeah. Well, one thing that you brought up that I think is uh, worth discussing is the idea of, you know, editing, you know, you talked about editing every 64th note or whatever. Um, and I think one thing you're really well known for is your guitar tracks and, and, and your guitar sounds in general. And, and I agree with that. I think you have amazing guitar tones. Um, and one thing I noticed with a lot of your guitars is that they tend to sound very tight and very, you know, very polished and, and big. So I'm curious to know, like, when it comes to getting those big tight sounds, what is your normal approach there? Is it, is it a combination? Like, are you relying on editing a lot for that? Or is it just a tracking thing that you're doing? Like, how, how do you get those tight sounds? Well, yeah, so it's, it's a combination of everything. So I spend a lot of time with the guitar player getting the tracks tight because I want them tight and in tune and I layer them and then they are edited. And I use my editor, Paul DeCarly, who's, an amazing guitar editor, like of all this stuff, he edits it, but he also keeps it tight as he also keeps it raw as well. So it's not too tight, but I do spend a lot of time with the guitar player getting each section tight. So like I make them play the, play the parts tight. Mm -hmm. So do you normally track like just chunk by chunk or section by section? That kind of yeah, thing? Section by section. Yeah. It's very section by, and I usually start with the choruses. So like all my records, I do the choruses first. And once I get the chorus rhythm guitars done, then I do the verse and then I do the bridge. Cool. I like that. And as far as layering guitar tracks goes, what's your normal approach with that? Is it just like a double track kind of thing or do you quad or what's that yeah, look like? Yeah, it's quadded. So uh, I'll find my first rhythm guitar track. So I'll find the guitar I want to use the amp I want to use and the speakers I want to use. So that'll be my, my first single track. And then I'll double that. And then I'll do a triple and a quadruple track. And then I'll switch guitars. I'll switch amps and I'll switch cabinets and speakers. So sorry, you'll do four tracks of the same guitar and then do another one or no, is it no. two? So two, two, uh, like a single and a double. The same guitar, same guitar amp, and same guitar cabinet. Gotcha. And same and, and speakers in the cabinet. Then I'll then I'll do another uh, a triple track and a quadruple track, and I'll use a different guitar, different amp, different speakers. Gotcha. So yeah, so and then it's like two per side kind of thing. Yeah, two per side. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. And, and then the main ones are like the main the the first two are my main guitar tracks. Like I really work on that is that's the main guitar tone and then the triple quad guitar tone is is very interesting because it's not like i'm not trying to go for a great guitar tone so it might be something i'm just filling in gotcha if you soloed it you would you would go well this wouldn't be your main rhythm track because maybe they're a little more mid-rangey don't quite have the bottom so i'm not trying to go for four amazing guitar tracks my main two are really those are the those those are the guitars and then the other ones are to fill in the mid-range or maybe to fill in a little more of the higher mids or maybe i want a little lower mid in there so mm -hmm. what, whatever i feel i'm missing from my first two tracks that's interesting yeah i've always found like i've tried the quad tracking thing so many times and i always find it very difficult to do because 
I never know what to do with the with triple or the quad, right? It's like because like to me, it's like oh, I got to get that that one amazing sound on the rhythm. But I, I see what you're saying. It's like you're just trying to like supplement where where that main track is missing. Yeah. But but there is also that struggle that people would have of like, well, if I can't get the sound right on that first couple tracks, then you know, how do I know I'm I'm gonna get there when I add a triple or a quad or whatever, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So I always know, like in my head, I see it. And again, for doing it for so long, I know exactly what I want my guitars to. And my guitars are only triple quadded in the choruses. So they're gotcha. not in, they're not in the verses. And they're just to come in just a little bit. So when that chorus comes in, there's just a little bit of a lift in there. So you might not hear like another set of guitars coming in, but you feel that chorus lift. So they're very subtle in there. Gotcha. They're they're not like, oh, here comes another four guitars or I got four guitars blaring through the whole song. They're just there to come in just to add a little bit of color in the chorus, but you don't really know they're there. Uh, if you take them out, they just all, all feel like they just beef up the main guitars just a little bit more in that chorus. Gotcha. As far as amps go, are you the type of person who just uses like one guitar, one amp kind of thing? Uh, or do you do you split off to different amps and, and record multiple layers that way? At the same time, you mean? Yeah. Uh, you threw a splitter? Is yeah, that yeah, you? yeah. Uh, you know what? I don't, sometimes I use a splitter, but I find it hard to get them in phase. Like each amp is a little loud and, and sometimes it's okay, but it's usually, there's always a phasing issue mm-hmm. when I'm using a splitter, when I'm using multiple amps. I, I just, for me, I know other people that use it and they swear by using multiple heads and cabinets, but for me, I just can't get it in phase. There's Fair. always a phasing issue. I get a better sound just out of one amp, one cabinet. That makes sense. And simplicity is often the best way to go. Yeah. So, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I try to keep it simple. Like everybody goes, well, how do you mic your guitar? And I go, you know what? I've always used just a 57. Sometimes I, I put in, if I need a little more low end in it, it's like I'll, I'll put it a KSM. I use a KSM 32. Uh, it's a sure microphone. I'll use a little bit of that if I need it. And if I'm doing lead guitars, I'll use, I'll add in a little bit of a 421, but all my guitars are all just a 50 157 on one speaker. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the, that idea of like the, having the triples and the quads to supplement the, the main rhythm track, you know, I think that's maybe one reason why a lot of people do like to split their amps and their cabs and, you know, maybe try to make up for it all in one take, but then there's, you know, you you could go that way, but then, like you said, you might run into some phasing issues. But then there's maybe also like timing issues that you get from doing the triples and the quads as well, right? Because now you've got more layers and, and different timing. And you have to, that's why you have to, and you have to make sure the tuning's in, right in. So the guitar player has to play in tune because if the minute you add triple quads in, and if you have a little bit of tuning, oh, it really it just sticks out like a sore thumb. So you got to make sure your guitars are in tune. And if they're a little bit out and you triple quad, you're in trouble. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I suppose that that's also another great reason to be recording in small sections too, so that you can be on top of that tuning and make sure that it's perfectly locked in. Yeah, it is. So yeah, I'll do, you know, a couple bars, the chorus or no, four bars and then, okay, is that good? And then, and then double it and sometimes punch into tune for the next chord. Like I'll do that a lot of times, especially if the guitar player has trouble getting, you know, moving around or he bends a little bit. Mm-hmm. I will punch chord by chord, which is really painful. And I don't like doing it, but if I have to do it, I'll do it. Yeah. When you say chord by chord, I've heard a lot of people talk about it before, but like as far as making up for the strumming and switching between one chord to another, how, how do you go about doing that? Are they just playing like playing it? They're staying on that chord. So say if they, you know, whatever they, if the next chord is, is a G, if they were on an A and then they got to go to a G or something, I'll just have them play the G chord through that A chord. So they're already there. And then I just drop in on that, on that chord. Gotcha. So you're not really getting like the, the finger movement captured in there. It's just like clean. It's clean. So it's a clean punch. And then I'll just tune for that G chord and then I'll tune the A chord. Because sometimes if the intonation, well, usually my guitars are pretty well intonated, but I'll, I'll tune for that, just that chord. So whatever the positioning is on it, 
that makes sense. Yeah, because because I when I you know listen to like Three Days Grace or something like that, like I can definitely feel like it's so tight and and I kind That's of so uh, tight. But Barry's an amazingly tight guitar player. Like he's one of the best guitar players I've recorded. So that is him. Like he is just good. Like literally anybody could record him honestly, and you're going to get a good guitar. To- he just gets a good guitar tone. He plugs in a guitar. He just grabs my guitar and he sounds good. Love that. Um, as far you were talking about mics and how you like to just keep things simple with the 57 primarily. One thing I remember hearing you mention in an interview was that you kind of have a, a trick for finding the sweet spot on a cabinet. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what that is? Yeah. So basically what I do and it's my favorite head. So I have a 50, the original PV 5150 and it just has a really nice white noise when you know when you plug when you plug an amp in and you just there's no guitar but you hear the shh through the speakers mm-hmm. as a really nice white noise coming through. So what I do is I get headphones and run run the noise through the headphones and then I just go there and move the microphone around the speakers and you find the sweet spot of this. Uh, you could hear it and, and and as soon as I find that really nice, you could you know as you're moving the mic around. And it's very subtle. I'm telling you, it's like you move it off, like just the slightest, maybe off the middle or to the middle or just, you know, angle it a bit and you really hear it and you find the best spot of the speaker. So what exactly are you listening for then with that white noise? Is it just like the top end or like mid range or something like? Yeah, like like for me, it's just what sounds good. Again, like like I'm. You as a as a listener, so I always look at myself as the listener. I'm the listener. What sounds good to me? So if it sounds good to me, I'm going with that with that feeling because I I go well. I trust myself. Like I know the music I like. All the music I like is is the best music. You know the records that I find that are the my favorite records were always the you know whatever the band may be is always their top selling record. So I'm going. That's what I like. That's just my taste. So I just go for everything that sounds good to me, that's pleasing to my ear. When I hear, because I know something when it's, you know, like when something, well, that's not very pleasing. It doesn't sound good. It does. I don't get anything off it. When I hear that, that doesn't sound very good. So for me, it's just, I'm always going for what, what's, what sounds good to me. And I go by that. I'm not trying to chase anything. I'm going, yeah, that's pleasing to my ear. I like that. So that's what I'm going to go with. So when I'm listening to the white noise, I go, that this sounds the best to me because you could hear it. It's, it's going to switch around. There's going to be more low end, more top end, more mid range. It's going to sound darker, brighter where you go. And I just go around till I go, hmm, I really like where that sa- how that sounds, even with the white noise. I'm going to go with that and let's just go there. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean I want more bottom or I want more top or more mid range. I go, this is just the most pleasing sound of the white noise coming out of the speaker. So let's go here and see what happens and never have to move the mic once I find that. So I'm going, well, it's, it's proven to me over years and years of doing it that when I get it there, I've, I've never had to go and readjust the microphones or the guitar players ever said to me, I don't like the way that sounds. So I'm going, I have to go with that because I've been right every time. Yeah. So then when you do that trick and you find that sweet spot, obviously you, you're, you were not listening to it with the actual guitar tone at that point. Um, so when you start getting the guitar running through it, if you're finding that you maybe do have a little too bright of a sound or too dark of a sound, are you just relying on the amp EQ at that point to, to fix that? Yeah. So I never ever use EQ on my guitars recording. No, no compression. Unless it's a clean guitar, I will use compression on a clean guitar. But as far as rhythm guitars, there's never EQ or never compression, not even roll off. Nothing. It's just flat. Everything's flat. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like, get the right sound at the source with the mic and amp combo, and yeah, you know, go for that. Yeah, and but yeah, plug the amp in if it sounds good. If it sounds, you know, the guitar players. I always think of it too. Like, if you put take the guitar head out into the into the room, get the guitar player to play, and he's happy with that guitar sound coming out of the amp. There, I just have to bring that in through the console. Yeah, makes sense. That's cool. So obviously we, we've dove into your uh, guitar sounds. What about when it comes to things like bass? Like, do you have a similar simplistic approach to bass or is it, what does that look like? So bass is, uh, I record five tracks when I do bass. 
So it used to be four, so I've added five, so I've got a little more complex. So I have my amp sound, which I use, and pretty much I've always used, on 95% of every record I did, I have a vintage SVT head through an 8 by 10 cabinet that I've had, and that's pretty much my, it's like I have, a, it's a 70 SVT bass head, 1970, I think it is. And so that's my main sound. Uh, and I could get a pretty, you know, whatever you, if I want to, you, you know, a little more distorted, I'll use a dark glass on it, but that's my main tone. Then I use a DI, which is just straight DI. Uh, I use it then a distortion, which I use a sans amp, like the original rack mounted sans amp. And that's my distortion. So that's on another track. And then I use an SVT, uh, SVT Pro 4, SVT 4 Pro, I think that's what it is, head through an SVT uh, 4x10 cabinet with the sub ports in the back. And what I do is I biamp the, biamp the lows from the amp into the speaker and I mic the ports. So I don't mic the uh, speakers. And that's a subtrack. Interesting. So there's nothing above, uh, you know, 100. And it's all low, but the sub is super tight. So that's where I get all my low end from. And now like I use, and then I'll use another track, which will be a plug-in track, which I'll put on it. And I'll use uh, an SVT or uh, a Galen Kruger uh, plug-in. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like you're, yeah, you've made this like, five layer dip of, of bass sounds where you got like, you know, your bass and you got that distortion and you got like the kind of the body and, and you're just like each of these different, uh, you know, amp or DI or sans amp or whatever, they're, they're each providing its own character to the sound that makes it up. And then, uh, do you then sum all of those channels together or do you? No, no, they're all on separate tracks. So again, for the, maybe the, maybe the verses, there's no distortion on the bass and, you know, then I could ride it in a little more sub here, you know, could ride it for the, it when it comes to the mix and gotcha. And then I know like, uh, even like Chris Lord algae who mixes a lot of the records, Howard and I do, he loves that it, the bass is separated like that because then he has control and every track sounds amazing. So you could go with either one, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you want, you, uh, but you have the option of blending them all together. And I always give a nice blend how I hear them sounding. So when it goes to anybody, they, you know, the five tracks are already, you know, balanced on each fade or where I think they should go. But then when you go to the mix, you know, hey, listen, I don't want the distortion in the verses. I could take it out or maybe it's too much in the choruses. Then you have the opportunity to add a little more, or a little less. Or That's cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, it definitely gives you a lot of versatility in a mix. Yeah, because if you mix it all to one, then it's like, oh, I too much distortion or not enough. And But having it across five tracks, every. You, you, there it's all there and the bass players love it too when they come in because they thinking they're getting five tracks and well <laughs> i've never i've never had my bass on five tracks before it's usually just a di or maybe a di and an amp so for them they love it and they love the control of it too because then they could go yeah this is i'm cool with this distortion sound be, you know and i could maybe go a little more aggressive on the distortion because they know it's on a separate track so mm-hmm. And then the DI later, like, listen, if I need, if I did use too much distortion on the distortion track, the DI could always be remite or re yeah, Saves the day kind of thing. Yeah. Saves the day. And the yeah. DI is clean. I don't compress it or anything. I just make sure that it's the, I have a good DI that makes sure it captures the, what the bass is really sounds like. Do you add compression to any of those channels? Uh, I do. I put 1176 on the amp and I put an LA3A on the, on the sub. Gotcha. And that's just to kind of level them off a little bit more. Yeah, level them off, and I like the way the I like the what the eleven seventy six does to the bass amp. It, the color it adds it because it darkens it a little bit too. So it just I like the eleven seventy six on the bass amp and the LA three A same on. I like what it does to the sub. Mm-hmm. It tightens it up and it gives it a darkness and a color to it, which I like. Yeah. As far as phasing goes with this kind of setup, because, you know, we were talking about splitting guitar amps and how you thought that would result in a phasey sound. Now you're adding five layers here with the bass. So how does that work with phase? I have to move them. And sometimes with the sub, one thing now, because we have Pro Tools, so I could see with bass, it's easy to see the wave. 
Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll move them. Gotcha. And if, I can't, and if I can't see the wave, what I do is I record a click through it, you know? So I was I just could, about to ask if you did that and like sync yeah, it up that way. Yeah, yeah. so I'll, I'll do a click track and that way I could see it for sure if I can't see the wave. That makes sense. I love that. Yeah, because the thing I notice with a lot of uh, mixes that I hear from people like, you know, with their home studios is that people tend to have bases that just don't feel controlled. Like the low end is either too too much or too little or it's like coming in and out throughout a mix and there's no consistency to a bass tone and i think that the way you describe your setup there really gives you the ability to get that that full balance throughout a track because you can compress that low end and make sure that it stays nice and put and then you know use the distortion track to get that harmonic content and all that stuff yeah Um, so it seems like there'd be a lot of flexibility with that setup and a lot of control and i I really like that a lot Mm mm-hmm yeah, it, it does help. And having the sub, it like really makes a difference because now I don't have to use so much low end on my on my amp, you know, for it to get muddy in the mix. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I want it to be super tight. And I think people like, you know, the low end thing is everybody wants so much low end. But if you think about it, the old records don't have that much low end in it, but they still have a lot of low end. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, it does for sure. It's like all that harmonic stuff, and everybody's getting so much low end that they're actually getting muddy. They're missing the they're missing the point of what low end sounds like. Like ACDC back in black, so it sounds amazing. Like you put on back in black, it sounds amazing everywhere, but it doesn't have that much low end in it. It sounds better than any record if you you play it in stadiums a- anywhere. It doesn't matter. It's going to sound good. I think that that could be partially because I feel like modern records are getting brighter and brighter, so we feel like we need to compensate. Yeah, with the low ends, right? Uh, because they're so bright now, we need all this low end. Yeah, whereas like those like old like Motown records or whatever, they just sounded big because there was no top end on them at all. Yeah, and they sound amazing. They sound uh, nobody goes that these records need more more low end. You've never heard anybody say to a Motown record, "Man, I wish they had more bottom end." Yeah, there's plenty of bottom, plenty of low end. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Mike, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but like this has been a lot of fun. I, I've really loved learning about your process, and um, you know, I, I love just your your approach to it and how you stack these sounds together, and how you also just keep things simple sometimes. And and I think that's really important and a, a big lesson for a lot of people to learn. So, uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. If uh, if people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? I don't even know because I don't I don't really do much. I don't, like I don't have any videos that I put out or anything. So I think it's just listening to my records or something. I don't know. Right on. Well, like I, you have a website too, so we can we can definitely yeah. plug that and uh, put that in the show notes too, so people can check that out. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. So that was my interview with Mike Plotnikoff, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really fascinating to hear his take on the pursuit of perfection. And I like how he said that he's constantly chasing that perfect record that he just hasn't reached yet. You know, I think that that's something that is very real for all of us. And I think it just goes to show that we do have to be willing to let projects go, you know, because... In Mike's case, he's worked on so many massive, massive records where there's lots of pressure behind it and all that stuff. And in in, in his mind, if he still hasn't reached that perfect sounding record, I mean, he could have held on long ago and not had all these opportunities. But because he's been putting things out there and, you know, just constantly just making records and trying to improve his own craft, I think that's why he's had such a great career. It's because he's willing to let go of projects and let them get in the wild and use the next opportunity to learn and grow. And I think that that's a really important lesson for all of us because, yeah, it's so easy to get in our heads sometimes about, you know, whether our tracks sound good enough and, you know, whether they're done and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I definitely like Mike's take on that in this interview. I also really enjoyed learning about his five-layer bass sound. I think that's a really interesting approach. And, um, you know, personally, I've always gone gone with a two-layer thing where, you know, you'll have a DI and a Dirty Sans amp. But I like the idea of his subtrack and how he's kind of been blending in some of the plugins and stuff like that, different amp sounds. I think it's really, really cool. So definitely something I'm going to try, and I highly recommend that you do as well. So yeah, I definitely learned a lot from that episode myself, and I hope that you did too. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking to learn more about how to create pro-sounding records from your home studio, and you're looking for a repeatable system that you can use to record your tracks, edit them properly, mix them properly, and get them sounding as good as your favorite records, then I'd love to help you out. I have a brand new coaching program. It's called Amplitude. And inside of this program, you're going to gain that system from beginning 
beginning to end so you get rid of all the guesswork and you know exactly what steps to take to make it sound pro. And not only are you going to gain that system, but you also get one-on-one coaching and feedback through the entire process so that you can make sure that you're on track and get feedback to make sure that you're taking the right steps. So if you're interested in learning more about this, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude. And I'd love to hop on a call with you to learn more about where you're currently at with your production skills, what your goals are, and to see how I can help you. And if it seems like it would be a great fit and that I can truly help you, then I would love to give you all the details about the program and work together with you. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called Amplitude and the website is masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude. And from there, you can book a call and I'd love to chat. All right, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.